Welcome to the Thoughtful Entrepreneur Show. I'm Josh Elledge, founder and CEO of UpMyInfluence.com. We turn entrepreneurs into media celebrities, grow their authority, and help them build partnerships with top influencers. We believe that every person has a unique message that can positively impact the world. Stick around to the end of the show, where I'll reveal how you can be our next guest on one of the fastest growing daily inspiration podcasts on the planet in 15 to 20 minutes. Let's go. And with us right now, we've got the founder and CEO of Sands Investment Group, Chris Sands. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Josh. And Chris, where are you based? Charleston, South Carolina. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So tell us about Stan's Investment Group, what you do. So we buy and sell uh, commercial real estate investment properties for our clients, as well as we advise in helping them uh, and we'll co-invest alongside with them. So we'll raise capital and do syndications of acquisitions of commercial real estate properties. Basically, what they're buying is income streams and a safe harbor place to put their capital in a market right now where there's a lot of fluctuation. So No kidding. Really good, yeah, it's a really good investment alternative of what we're providing right now. So for folks that may be familiar with residential real estate investment, how does commercial, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of differences, you know, but just from kind of a high level, you know, what are some of the main differences that the investor experiences when investing in commercial properties? Great question, Josh. Uh, the biggest difference is it's purely uh, a financial vehicle for them. There's no emotions tied into it. It's not a personal residence of any sort or a second residence or a vacation home of any capacity. Uh, the most similar thing to compare it to in residential would be buying a rental home and renting it out. Whether, that, whether that's a VRBO or an Airbnb that you do or a bed and breakfast, or maybe you just do short-term rentals. Uh, we have that, but sort of on steroids, if you will. So the credit mm. behind the properties that we're buying is usually corporate credit. So picture this, you have a buyer or an owner of a property that owns the building, the brick and mortar and the land, and then they'll lease that. And rather than leasing it to Josh Elledge and his family for a weekend or a month or a year, they'll lease it to Walgreens or to McDonald's or to um, Chick-fil-A. They'll lease it to a grocery store like Whole Foods or you name it. And so really the tenant is much more of a corporate credit, which creates a financial income stream via rent. And so people buy these properties and the beauty of the properties of which we primarily sell is they have a triple net lease. When a triple net lease means that the tenant pays for all expenses, that's insurance, yeah, taxes, any building maintenance, you name it. So from a management standpoint, it's very hands-off. And so it's a very attractive investment vehicle for anybody that doesn't even have a huge acumen in real estate to buy this as a passive income stream and just kind of benefit from coupon clipper or mailbox money. You know, I'm thinking about it. I, you know, I guess I didn't really realize this, that so retailers or these commercial properties don't typically own the building. Very rarely do they because they're in the game of doing what they do best. Now, some companies will own and that's a part of their strategic growth. But at the end of the day, where they thrive and they've always, there's a joke in the restaurant sector is focus on baking the burgers or making the burgers and we'll take care of the real estate part. So they'll use the real estate and sell the real estate out if they buy it along with the business as a way to leverage capital and then use that money to inject back into their business. Because remember, their whole goal is to grow their EBITDA, which is their underlying profits, right? And if they can grow that EBITDA, the valuation of their company gets stronger. The real estate component of it isn't usually always factored into a valuation. So uh, when a private equity firm or a larger firm is looking to buy a real estate or you know, an operational company, 
it's usually driven off of the profits or EBITDA rather than, hey, do you own that building yeah. or that? So it's not as relevant in their big picture game plan. Wow. Yeah. So like, say, for example, like a Walgreens, I mean, that's, that's a, you know, I think we all know what, what a typical Walgreens building looks like. <laughs> they all look the same or, or you know, or yep. a CVS. Yeah, they, they have a few prototypes. They'll try to fit into certain boxes when it's more of an urban or a high-density area. But yeah. for the most part, they have a prototype of ten to 14,000 square feet. They have these amazing demographic research to teams that they do to see where traffic counts and who the higher consumers are going to be that are allowing a store to be successful. And then many times yeah. they'll place themselves against a competitor or a nearby competitor so that if CVS has market share, they can garner market share. But the net result is, you know, you got to look for our our advantage point. We got to look for the intrinsics and make sure that it's a long-term play for that tenant. Because even the best tenants could sometimes decide, hey, this isn't a good location for us. But the credit behind the lease is what's going to back it. And therefore, you can go to sleep at night knowing you're going to get your rent check every month. Yeah. Uh, so where does Sands Investment Group kind of fit into the, uh, to, to all, the, all the transactions? So we are, uh, so I started in the business buying and selling it as, at a big brokerage firm, um, sort of a national firm at the time in 2003 and was there for about seven years, kind of got my feet underneath me, built our client base, started working with, you know, the REITs and the institutional players of the world, even private equity firms that you're probably aware of. Um, and then essentially in the market turned in 2008 and nine, as you know, um, and was home one night on a long night praying what to do. And the market turned upside down. My wife was working at Yahoo and she got laid off and we were pregnant with our first kid as of six months at the time. And so we had great income coming from me, really good income coming from her. And we had no income almost happening because of the turn of the market. And uh, she said to me that night, you got to go get a job. And I said, I don't think you understand. I've been working 80 hours a week. We're building a business here. So I went, she went to bed that night and I was just praying a bunch. And in my heart, I just felt like there was something about honesty and brokerage, the honest broker. How do you do a black or a gray business in, an, in a black and white way? And so I went online, I Googled honest broker or honesty and brokerage and nothing came up. And I thought, this is sad. And nothing came up in really any other thing in terms of securities or wealth advisory, you name it. And I said, well, there's got to be some way that we could build a culture and a company based on honesty, integrity, values, you name it. So that was the birth of SIG or Sands Investment Group. And really, like, to answer your question direct, you know, when owners want to sell a property that they own or when they want to buy a property that they own in our sector, which is commercial real estate, and that's retail, office, industrial, uh, medical office, the only thing we don't do is multifamily or apartment buildings, then we're the chosen team to go to. And right now we're in probably in the top 3% or th top three or two companies in the industry that do what we do. And our niche, wow. and then nationally, if you take everything, all the big firms, we're in the top 15 companies nationally as well. That's so. amazing. Yeah, it's been an so, amazing journey. To, to what do you attribute your growth? Uh, you know, being open about it, it's this company's bigger than me. So first of all, getting out of the way every day and letting the good Lord guide the ship. That's number one. Uh, great people. I mean, we've got an amazing team that have been with us for a long time. And some have left the train and joined, new people have joined the train as we've grown. But I think our culture has always been our number one driver for making sure that we're built on teamwork, collaboration, and really my favorite African proverb, which is together we can go far, alone you can only go so far. But, and so I think that's one of the big drivers for us as a firm is to make sure that we're doing this collaboratively and providing the best service we can to the marketplace. And the last little yeah. thing I'll say is, you know, when you focus on other people's interests rather than your own, then you usually end up being taken care of. And I think that that continued 
for, you know, forefront focus of ours as a firm has allowed us to really take care of our clients rather than just be in it for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Chris, you know, looking at 2020 now and man, I, I mean, over the next 12 months, I, I believe we're going to see a lot of movement. And I think, you know, we're, again, we're experiencing a year we've never seen. What does this mean for the commercial real estate investor? A tremendous amount of opportunity. Yeah, there's a pending election, a new administration, you know, potential, uh, which would bring with it tremendous amount of new laws in terms of tax regulations, tax reform, you name it, potentially, at least what's being said. Additionally, and I think you've got um, in any shifting market, potentially real opportunity. When you look at the stock market, it's, you know, maybe I think it is healthy. Don't get me wrong. The numbers look good. But at the end of the day, there is still a huge unemployment rate right now across the country, mm-hmm. given everything going on with COVID. And I don't think that that's just going to go away, even if a vaccination appears here in November or whatnot. So where, um, you know, where there is sort of turmoil or a change or shift or whatever that might be, it creates opportunity. The thing that's sound about commercial real estate is it's brick and mortar. There's, a bedded, there's an embedded need for it. I mean, there's concepts that need to be up and operational. We saw that with even essential concepts. When even COVID shut down a lot of businesses, there was the essential needs that were able to stay open on a daily basis. Gas stations, drugstores, grocery stores, even casual dining, or not casual dining, restaurants, fast food chains, you name it. And so I think with that, uh, we've seen a huge resurgence, or actually just a, a huge flocking of people wanting to get into our sector as an investment vehicle. Because if you look at the banks, they're offering less than 1%. And if you have money in the stock market and you were in March and then April, you had a 20 to 30% drop. Well, you didn't have that if you own commercial real estate. So I think, you know, there are some sectors that got impacted. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying everything is gold. But if you do it right, you, you kind of attach yourself with the right advisory group, you absolutely can thrive through a shifting market. So you watch this industry pretty closely. And so, like, if you're looking at retail as a whole, what 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 portions of it would you say, listen, I mean, I, I don't have the crystal ball, but I mean, come on, you know, over the next 12 months, this part is going to be thriving. And this part is, you know, it's probably going to take a little while for it to recover. Like I, I would imagine, you know, sit, I don't know, um, but it seems like sit down restaurants or bars might be you know, that's kind of a, you're gonna have to hold on for a little bit. I think that it's going to take a while. And I'm coming at this from kind of a a consumer, um, you know, kind of studying consumer behavior um, perspective. Uh, And and so I'm curious, what other observations that that, that you're seeing, or the observations that you have? Yeah, it's a great question, Josh. And to answer your question, you know, two sides. I think one is the consumer perception and two is the ears to the ground, having a pulse on what's going on in the marketplace. Because there is a right. small disparity between the two. I think the consumer perception is dead on with what you said. Uh, you, know, you look at entertainment as it relates to movie theaters or any type of like, you know, top golf or anything that's sort of experiential retail that we've been starting to see more and more pop up. That's obviously impacted with the COVID regulations and social distancing and whatnot. When you look at other things, like you said, casual dining and distancing and limited capacity in restaurants, they've been, they have absolutely gotten hit hard. And there's a lot of restaurant mm-hmm. chains that have had to shut down. Um, but what's interesting is when you look at the essential needs, that's a really safe place. And in some respect, I think it's been a unique litmus test to see what, tells, what kind of survives the test of time in a shifting market. And we saw this in 2008 and 2009, gas stations, grocery stores, 
fast food. Some of our fast food operators are up higher than they've ever been in their sales because people don't want to cook every night. They're tired of it. So they're yeah. doing takeout, curbside pickup, you name it. Um, and then you look at other concepts like dollar stores, anything where you're getting impacted in the economy from an income standpoint that allows you to absorb that in a way where there is a retailer that could provide for that sort of you know, bridge, if you will. So family dollar, dollar general, those sales are back up. Drug stores were sort of on the down in terms of a huge attraction because there was too many built. And all of a sudden in 2015, 16, 17, Walgreens was overbuilt. There's too many of them. There was a huge merger that took place between Walgreens and Rite Aid. And I think what's interesting is now all of a sudden, while they were started kind of falling a little bit away into the sunset of people's interest in investing them, 2020 hits with COVID and all of a sudden there's a huge resurgence of people buying Walgreens and CVSs again because of that daily mm. needs concept. So I think you're going to see that uh, a lot more uh, in terms of investors kind of going towards a certain need concepts that have more essential needs. Now I'll say this last thing briefly, having our ear to the ground, I can tell you Top Golf right now has got, I think, close to two dozen projects under either development or in entitlement or plan check right now. I know that mm -hmm. different concepts that are out there that you and I would probably sit there and scratch our head and say, when are they ever going to open? Or why would that be a national mm -hmm. regional concept? They're opening, they're expanding. So I think there's the reality is that we saw when everything got locked down for about two months to three months, depending on what state you were in, yeah. there was a massive, massive itch of human beings wanting to get out and experience and just be out in public. And that yeah. sort of quarantine, I think it made a lot of people, I think it still does make a lot of people kind of get crazy, itchy and want to go do things. And so I don't think that this concept of going to retail is ever going to be obsolete. It's just going to change with Amazon and more of sort of the online e-presence of what we see now today. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm curious to, you know, I, I look at, you know, the, the resurgent or the, you know, how, uh, you know, services like, you know, delivery services like your door dashes and that sort of thing. And, you know, I interviewed someone December, he's talking about the restaurant apocalypse, you know, how uh, Gen Z's and to some extent millennials just really don't like going to sit down restaurants, but man, they love the heck out of having food delivered. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, talking about like ghost kitchen concepts and that sort of thing, um, you know, and, and how the restaurant industry is changing. It's, it's fascinating. Well, you'll see more food trucks pop up. I think, you know, there's just a lot of ways that I think in some respect, COVID's made, there's silver linings in everything. And so there's a lot of shift that'll happen from this mm -hmm. and it'll evolve. But I don't think, you know, I think it's going to it's going to be a long time, probably in your and my lifetime before we see casual dining completely be obsolete, where you just don't oh, go yeah. to a restaurant anymore, right? That's just not going to happen. There's mm -hmm. that social interaction requirement that is too high right now or prevalent that we saw in this last few months that it will always be present. All right. So Chris, I want to get in. How do I get in on commercial real estate investing? Well, I think the first thing is to align yourself and do your due diligence on who's been at it for a specific period of time, who aligns with the right moral values of how you want to go about doing it. If it's all about the quick buck, it's not your game. This is a long, this is a get rich long yeah. you know, scheme and that's not a scheme, but it's a strategy. And so um, is it, is it, it's a little bit of the tortoise and the hare, but I think what's fun about it is that most people, when you talk to them across any arena, any, any, anywhere they are, even the most successful people that make a high ordinary income, there's this sort of, there's an attraction to passive leveraged income. Mm -hmm. End of story. The concept of being able to sit on a beach or be on a ski lift and be making money along the way while you don't have to do anything. And I think that that is what makes what we do so attractive. So a find an, an advisor or a team or a company that has a group of advisors that have access to the best inventory 
and then can really guide you along a very strategic plan to be able to get started. So if you join, you know, and say, hey, well, I'm interested, we would figure out where you're at financially today. And even if you didn't have the money, we would start looking at strategies of ways to help you get to a place where you knew it was safe to then start to put some capital into the arena that we play in. And then if you did have the capital, we'd start to build a strategy of how every year we would put together an investment vehicle for you. So that if you said, hey, in 10 years from now, I want to have a passive income of X, we can create a model for you to show you exactly how much you need to invest each year and the different types of properties you can invest in or syndications to where you can start to create that reoccurring cash flow. Yeah. At what point, what do you think the uh, kind of the entry point is? Like if someone's like, well, I don't have a lot of cash, but, you know, I could probably put together X. Like, you know, if even if it was like a syndicate, syndicated deal, like yeah. what, what do you think they'd want to get, you know, they, they probably need to have on hand to get started? Yeah. You know, we're not at the crowdfunding phase yet where, you know, you put yeah. $5,000 or a hundred bucks in and it's like a day trading, <laughs> if you will, a little bit. But, yeah, you know, right. I think what we would say is as long as you were on the brink of, or you have to be accredited investor, which has some requirements so that we're doing mm -hmm. this right too. But $25,000 from a dog-eared amount to be able to put to work is really sort of our entrance point. Um, but if we have people that, you know, are, we have a good conversation with them and know where they're at, then sometimes it could be a little bit less as long as there's a growth plan along the way. What are the advantages to commercial over like, say, MDUs? Well, you know, there's a multitude of them. But in my opinion, again, I think that you've got these daily need concepts that drive the, the tenancy of these properties. And therefore, the revenue streams are very predictable compared to alternative investments where, yes, you could argue there are certainty in different arenas. I don't know. There's, to me, I like the concept of what we all do every day to go out and buy and consume. Then it's like, let's invest behind that. Rather than being in the stock market, we have no control of what a company does or doesn't. You still own the yeah, building. No. So let's say Walgreens leaves, and that wouldn't be a great thing. You still own the building, and you have the capability of retenanting and safe harboring your investment versus just mm -hmm. a 30% dip in the market. I can't change anything about the company or how that company is being run, and I'm tied to other people's decisions versus our own. So I would imagine, you know, looking at, you know, well, this part of town, how is this part of town trending? You know, is there... You know, because let's say it's a part of town that's just like, it, it's, you know, it's just kind of on its way down. And then, you know, you know that it might be risky that Walgreens might decide to pull out for whatever reason. You know, obviously, you don't want to be holding on to something that's going to sit with no tenant for quite some time. Um, I, I, I'm curious, like, how that all works. Like, how do you know, you know, hey, this, this part of town's doing really, really well, so get in because it's going to be a ride to the top. Or is there a strategy say, listen, we think, I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, is it just, yeah, I guess it, it then it just gets into a supply and demand kind of situation. Like, listen, this is a riskier investment or this is, you know, you're going to get a better deal because it's kind of a depressed area or something. Yeah, it's a great question, Josh. And I love the way, what I'm impressed with you is that, well, I know you have an understanding of commercial real estate. You can dive into it. No, I don't. You. No, but you, <laughs> I just talk point. a good game, my but brother. You, have a good, you, like, you can ask really poignant questions to something in which I, you know, there's a lot of arenas I couldn't even ask a question on. So I'm impressed with that. Yeah. So what I would say to answer your, it's, so here's a couple of things. Number one, um, when it really, we've been really fortunate that with technology and with sort of our ability to have brokerage licenses in different states, we've been able to buy and sell properties in 47 states. And we've been a part of over 4,100 transactions. Um, and so what that allows us to do is look at a lot of different areas throughout mm -hmm. the country with technology, though, with Google Earth and with um, demographic reports, you name it, you can see a lot of things such as average household income, 
you know, what is the demographic population density of one, three, five mile radius? What's traffic counts per, per this, by this property versus, you know, other properties, et cetera. And then I think the core intrinsics of what you need to look for, and this is why it's so important that you align yourself with someone who does this every day, is you got to yeah. make sure that it's good underlying real estate, even though it might be in a small little podoc town, is that sort of the main arterial of where you need to get through or go to in order to be the attraction in town. Number two, you got to look at barriers to entry. So if you go to markets like Arizona or Las Vegas, for example, when they were blowing up, there was no barrier to entry. So what happened is if you build here and it's Maine and Maine, Maine and Maine could then get built two blocks away from that or maybe three miles away from there. And all of a sudden, the epicenter starts to change. So you got to be aware of those things. And then the last big thing is this is people chase a lot of times a yield. So they'll say, you know, I want a 9% return and they'll make a lot of compromises to get the higher yield. You got to look for the sound fundamentals of are the rent is the rent replaceable. So if I lost this tenant, can I replace the rent with someone else? Probable. Yeah. And so if you have some of the key, you know, sort of KPIs or variables that make a good deal, I can take you to any part of the country, and then we can look at that with that key or that legend and say, yeah, this lines up. These hit our three investment criteria. This is a pretty safe investment. You never know, but that gives you a way better fighting chance than the alternative. Chris Sands, founder and CEO of Sands Investment Group. Your website is signnn.com. Anything else that, that folks should look for when they go to your website? No, just give us a call. Uh, you know, we've got a great team and we'd love to help people kind of work through solutions, challenges, or anything they're excited about setting goals and helping them get there. Over 4.7 billion with a B dollars in closed transactions. Chris, uh, congratulations on all your success. And you know, one thing we didn't even get into is your wife is the CEO. That's that's a great story. We wish we had more time. We could have talked about that. We'll we'll bring you on in about six months, and we'll 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 talk we'll talk more about uh, you know how you were able to grow this alongside your wife too, because I'm sure there's some great stories there. Couldn't have done it without her. So I'd love to have her actually maybe do the next one. She'd do a lot better than me. So, <laughs> all right, Chris, thanks so much. Thank you, Josh. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Thoughtful Entrepreneur Show. If you are a thoughtful business owner or professional who would like to be on this daily program, please visit upmyinfluence.com slash guest. Now, if you've got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media? Just do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend or post it on the socials. Now, if you do that, tag us with the hashtag upmyinfluence each month. We scour Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. We pick one winner from each platform, and you get crowned king or queen of that social media. Now, what do you win? Well, we're going to promote you and your business to over 120,000 social media fans totally free. Now, can you also hook us up? Now, in your podcast player right now, please give us a thumbs up or a rating and review. We promise to read it all and take action. We believe that every person has a message that can positively impact the world. Your feedback helps us fulfill that mission. And while you're at it, hit that subscribe button. You know why? Tomorrow, that's right, seven days a week, you are going to be inspired and motivated to succeed. 15 minutes a day. Now, my name's Josh Elledge. Let's connect on the socials. You'll find all the stuff we're doing at upmyinfluence.com. Now, thanks for listening, and thank you for being a part of the Thoughtful Entrepreneur Movement. Mm -hmm.